what we see as we look at history from the standpoint of the kingdom of God, we see that the kingdom of God advances and then recedes. It's like waves. The outpouring of the Spirit, times of refreshing from the presence of the Lord, and then that recedes. So that's what happened in the wake of the Great Awakening. There was a receding of godliness, a receding of interest in Jesus Christ and obedience to his ways. Uh, J. Edwin Orr has a very graphic description of this period in a famous teaching that he gave back in 1976. I'm just going to read a little bit of it. The Chief Justice of, of uh, the United States, John Marshall, wrote to the Bishop of Virginia, James Madison, that the church, quote, was too far gone ever to be redeemed. Voltaire averred and Tom Paine echoed, quote, Christianity will be forgotten in 30 years. Take the liberal arts co colleges at that time. A poll taken at Harvard had discovered not one believer in the whole of the student body. They took a poll at Princeton, a much more evangelical place, and discovered only two believers in the student body. Remember, Princeton started as the log college during the Great Awakening, and it was entirely for Christians. So things have changed uh, during the uh, 1770s and 80s. Kenneth Scott Latourette, the great church historian, wrote, It seemed as if Christianity were about to be ushered out of the affairs of men. But now that's going to change, and it's going to change because of this man, John Erskine, who's a Scottish Presbyterian pastor who experienced the great awakening of Cambuslang in Scotland under the ministry of George Whitfield. And he has become, in the meantime, a very well-known and respected pastor in Britain. And he's going to write a pamphlet encouraging people to, to pray for another awakening. And uh, it's going to get into this country. It's going to somehow or other get into the hearts of a whole lot of, of, uh, of, of leaders, church leaders who see this is the only possible hope. And, and so whatever denomination you were, you began to pray for another great awakening. People had seen enough of God's power that they knew this was their hope now. So that was invited through prayer. And I want to just uh, look at one man, uh, a guy named James McGrady, who is a Presbyterian. So he comes from this tradition of praying for revivals. And uh, he's, he's in a place called uh, Stony Creek Church in uh, the Raleigh-Durham area of North Carolina. But he's not preaching a, a gospel of comfort and ease. He's preaching the righteousness of Christ because he cares about the kingdom of God. He, he wants people to honor Jesus as their king, you see, their Lord. And so he's telling people, the difference between right and wrong. Well, there are people in his congregation who don't like this, and they tend to be the wealthy people, the rich people, the powerful people, okay? People in the South have, have not been confronted with the righteousness of Christ exactly. So this is new to them, 
and they're, um, uh, they're complaining about it. Well, one day it goes beyond complaining. Uh, the, some of the members of these uh, wealthy families decide they're going to teach James McGreedy a lesson. And so these uh, young, young ones uh, show up, uh, break into the church. Uh, they break up the, the seating in the church. They haul the pulpit out into the yard, um, uh, shatter it with axes, and then light the, the pieces uh, to, to fire and burn it to ashes. And then they go into the church and they leave a note for James McGreedy. Next time we will not stop with the pulpit. This is written in blood, by the way. And then they order him to leave the county uh, at peril of his life. So James McGreedy shows up with his people uh, <laughs> the next Sunday and they find the mess and they find the note. But uh, McGreedy preaches an impromptu sermon from the text, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, thou that killest the prophets and stonest those sent to thee. And he was not offended at all. I mean, he was, uh, <coughs> it seemed like it encouraged him to preach more righteousness. And um, <clears throat> they're not going to get rid of him. And uh, in fact, the people in these uh, families uh, dropped out of the church and pretty soon their, their lives are in a shambles. Well, um, God is uh, going to respond to all of this by giving James McGreedy a heart for his next challenge. And his next challenge is a place called Logan County, Kentucky. He's going to get a prayer burden. Um, you know, I've gotten a couple of prayer burdens like this, where you just, God just says, this is, this, these are the people on my heart. I want you to start praying for them. And so uh, God does this sometimes. And, uh, and he had a prayer burden for Logan County, except most people didn't call it Logan County. They called it Rogues Harbor. But James McGreedy called it the worst place in America. And so why did it have such a terrible reputation? It's because there was no law and order whatsoever in Logan County. In fact, a lot of Kentucky was like this at that time. Um, if, if you committed a crime of any sort, even really horrible crimes, if you could manage to escape uh, arrest and travel to Logan County, then you would never be arrested because there was no law and order there and um, criminals were protected. Everybody knew that Logan County was a catch basin for criminals, and that's mostly who lived there, um, although there were a few Christians there as well. Um, and so James McGreedy was, uh, was, was given a burden to pray for these people, and uh, he, he actually called the people of North Carolina to pray for them. Um, there was actually a, a covenant of prayer like that which John Erskine was, uh, was inviting, but here is uh, a covenant for the people of uh, North Carolina. It was called the Carolina Covenant to pray for the worst place in America until God poured out his spirit there. And then James McGrady himself went to Rogues Harbor and he lived there 
and he built three small churches, Presbyterian churches, and he also gathered the Christians of Logan County together, just a very few Presbyterian, Baptist, and Methodist uh, uh, Christians together and to begin praying together in one accord for that county. Well, lo and behold, it didn't take that long. In 1799, uh, at a communion service, um, this is what happened. I'm just going to read to you the, the tail end of this one service um, at James McGreedy's church. Methodist John rose to preach. A witness said he exhorted people to let, quote, the Lord God omnipotent reign in their hearts and submit to him. People began to cry and to shout. Then a woman who had first started shouting let out a shrill cry of anguish. Methodist John McGee, seemingly in trance, made his way to comfort her. Someone, probably his Presbyterian brother, reminded him that this was a Presbyterian church. The congregation would not condone emotionalism. Later, John recalled, I turned to go back and was near falling. The power of God was so strong on me. I turned again and, losing sight of the fear of man, I went through the house shouting and exhorting with all possible ecstasy and energy, and the floor was soon covered with the slain. In other words, you have another canvas laying revival. You have people who are responding to the power and presence of God just the same as they did in that overpowering presence of the power of God. And um, James McGrady is going to have another communion service. The same thing is going to happen, but much bigger, because in the meantime, the word has gone out of what happened in the first one, and here are all these people who are going to come in wagons. Now, these are some of them, the criminals of Rogue's Harbor. Uh, these are people of no morals, um, yet somehow the presence of God attracting these people. Okay, then there's another guy, uh, Barton Stone, who comes from a nearby place called Cane uh, Ridge, a church there. I think I actually have a, a picture um, of his church somewhere. Uh, and uh, he, he's going he's gonna to clear a field, um, I guess, in front of this place. And uh, expecting um, maybe a few hundred people would show up for services. Instead, 20,000 people show up. You know, how does this happen? Um, this is a tenth of the population of Kentucky. God's presence and power have an attractiveness somehow. It goes beyond anything that you and I can imagine. And so here's all these people gathered together. The preaching is going forth and... Um, Things are happening, you know, more things are happening. There, there's going to be people uh, flopping on the ground like a fish on dry ground uh, until they um, con confess and uh, repent of their sin. It's really going to be a scene. There's going to be hawkers and gawkers coming to this scene. And yet in the midst of all of the bizarre goings on, 
God is confronting thousands of people in the wilderness and taming the wilderness. Now, just just wait, just look, take a step back here and just look at this and ask yourself and compare it with the Roman situation that I described in the first of these teachings. Rome decided that barbarians needed to be civilized, but their vision for it didn't work. In other words, it was the the very leaders of Rome who were supposed to be civilized. They were the ones that uncivilized even the people of Rome. Uh, They were leading them into depravity and sin, and their vision of civilizing didn't work. Now here we've got a God going into totally uncivilized areas, and this is a pattern we've been seeing goes back to George Wishart, if you remember that. Or uh, at Northampton, Massachusetts, where it, it's like Jonathan Edwards says, it's the least likely person who is confronted first, and God is wanting to, to show what he can do. Well, this is, this is just a pattern of the kingdom of God. God is showing that nobody is so far gone that they cannot be embraced and enfolded into the kingdom of God. And Jesus loves even the most hardened sociopathic sinners. And uh, it's just amazing what he has done. And, you know, God, God wasn't calling people to have debates about whether the things that happened in the Kentucky revival were proper or not. What he was calling the church to do was to make disciples of those people who had just been encountered by the living God. There were a lot of people who just did not understand this, but the Methodists did. And so we've got Francis Asbury. Francis Asbury saw that the job of the church is to take people into their care and make sure that they are obeying the commands of Christ. They are surrendering their lives. They're living according to the pattern of Christ in the word of God. And so Francis Asbury um, was a key person in um, all of those wilderness churches growing up and establishing the circuit riders and so on, um, they, they, the Presbyterians tended to not want to dirty their hands with people like this. But the Methodists saw that God loves them as much as anybody, and so you have all of these churches throughout the wilderness growing up. God tamed with the wilderness. Now there's a couple of quotes that I want to read to you uh, from Uh, James McGrady, that show his heart. People who have experienced the inside of these movements. In other words, they've they've jumped in the water and they are in the midst of the presence of God. To them, there's nothing like it. To those who stand on the outside criticizing, those people never quite get it. But to people in the midst of it, there's nothing like the presence and the power of God. 
And so this is what James McGreedy says. God, the God with whom we deal, desires unity, but it will be his unity which he will bring. We cannot do his work for him, for we are not him. We are not God. We can only do the work he has given us to do, which is to seek his holy face, so that he will in his mercy and in his kindness, according to his revealed will for us and for all mankind, send his spirit in a mighty outpouring of revival, of spiritual renewal and awakening. You you get this in McGree. This is what he wants more than anything else for us, and I believe that we are in a time where we have the same need that he described. We don't need a lot more churches. What we need is the presence of God that comes in answer to prayer. Now here in 1802, this is from uh, a a historian uh, by the name of Bob Lohman, who uh, more or less uh, kind of specializes in uh, James McGreedy and what happened in North Carolina with the uh, Carolina Covenant. And uh, this, this is a, a, a gem from him. He says, in 1802, some of the believers in the area of McGreedy's churches, sensing a lapse in the revival's fervor and fearing that it was about to end, besought God for many days and weeks to renew and continue the revival in all of its manifestation of his mighty power. And so this, he's describing, uh, was the, the motivation for this group of largely illiterate people to come and, and labor in prayer because they just didn't want to see the presence of God lift off. But then in the midst of this, uh, this interesting word, what they said was that God promised them that though this revival would not last many more years, there would be another revival far greater than this one into the future near the end of the age. This revival would come in two waves. The first wave would surpass anything that had gone before it, even the revival that began on the day of Pentecost. The first wave of the revival would be hijacked by ministers and churches seeking to use the revival for their own purposes, seeking to add members to their churches and to build up their kingdoms rather than God's. Because of that, the first wave of the revival, though it would last a long time, would end. The second wave would not come until a number of years later. When it comes, it will surpass even the first wave in its magnitude and its fervor. It will seem as if the whole world is coming to God. This wave of revival will not be hijacked nor destroyed by anyone. Wow. And I believe we're moving towards that time. Uh, I don't know when in that uh, particular scenario we are where we are, but I believe that we are moving toward that time. Let me just uh, also give you an idea of the second great awakening and what it created or caused. In other words, it's a transformational time in the history of the country. So yes, it did cause a lot of churches to be built, but what else? Let me just give some statistics here. These are from Mark Knoll, who's professor of history in uh, Wheaton College. And this is what he said in a lecture several years ago. 
First of all, of the, at the end of this period of time, and he's, he's specifically mentioning a 60-year period that starts at the beginning of the Second Great Awakening and moves then for 60 years. He says, of, at the end of that period, of 54 of the oldest colleges, 51 now have clergy for their presidents. Um, he says there's going to be, at the end of this 60-year period, 35 churches for every bank. Today we have four churches for every bank. Um, what does that tell you about the, the relative <laughs> care about spiritual versus uh, material treasures? Um, he says, churches in that period of time grew two to three times faster than the population growth, even though during that period of time, the population grew faster in this country than any other time in the history of our country. Giving to churches was 25 times that of the, of the taxes given to the government. Okay, now here's some statistics about church growth. In 1790, there were 700 Presbyterian churches in this country. In 1860, there were 6,000. 700 to 6,000. Okay, how about Methodists? In 1790, there were 700 Methodist churches, the same number as the Presbyterians. But by 1860, 20,000. So you see the effect of Francis Asbury's heart for discipling the wilderness. Today, I believe we need Francis Asbury and the Methodists' heart for making sure that people end up as actual followers of Jesus. So then we want to also ask ourselves, okay, how else did the Second Great Awakening affect our country? What were the transformational effects? So we, we've been following the slave industry, and now we're going to see what happened with that.